Hello and welcome to shipwreckpodcast.com. I'm Rick Mixer and today I'm aboard La Belote, a cruise ship where I'm representing Gohagen Travel to share stories of the inland seas as we visit all five Great Lakes. Passengers aboard experience Niagara Falls, the Sioux Canal, Detroit, and a full day on historic Mackinac Island. It's this mystical islet that I will spend this podcast investigating. The earliest history of Mackinac has been lost to the ages. Thousands of years of stories by at least three native languages that have been roughly translated by French priests centuries later. Elementary students have been taught that it was French explorer Jean Nicolet who discovered Lake Michigan and the state of Wisconsin, landing on the red banks of what is now Green Bay. But that journey is just so vague, with no first-person account of the trip from Lake Nipissing down to Lake Huron, through the Straits to Lake Michigan. Only written relations a decade later tout the feet of Nicolet, who must have passed Mackinac twice in the summer of 1634, but died in a tragic storm in a small canoe near his home in Quebec. With its unique skyward hump and obvious geologic features, it's a wonder Mackinac Island wasn't better described by its earliest literate visitors. When it was first described by Father Claude Alloway in 1665, he wrote it could be seen as far as 12 leagues, or 26 miles. The height of Mackinac Island is attributed to its tall hump that reaches 904 feet above Lake Huron. To Native Americans, it resembled a turtle just below the surface, but an argument over the name Michelamackinac still languishes today. Depth soundings in the Straits have indicated that an ancient riverbed exists over 200 feet below. Recently, an underwater waterfall was discovered 200 feet down. Its location is still secret, but depth indications on the east side of Mackinac Island indicate a depression that could be the pool created by the flow of the water. This could be a waterfall that rivals the height of Niagara. The channel was cut before the last glacier formed on the Great Lakes. It's theorized Lakes Michigan and Huron were much smaller then, dubbed Chippewa and Stanley by scientists. It's believed the water flowed mostly through the Ottawa River to the St. Lawrence and then to the Atlantic Ocean. Mackinac is so unique in the Straits, having eroded sea stacks that still exist. East of the island are similar structures on Flowerpot Island in Georgian Bay. On Mackinac, Sugarloaf dwarfs Flowerpot sculptures, once home to a cave that could be accessed by tourists. Anishinaabe people believe the monolith was a stone wigwam of the great spirit Manabazo. Father Claude de Blon was the first to record staying on the island, awaiting the Straits to thaw over the winter of 1670 and naming a new mission for the founder of the Jesuits, St. Ignatius of Loyola. That next year, Father Marquette moved the mission to the mainland, establishing one of the oldest continuous settlements in the United States. Father Pierre Charlevoix in 1721 wrote the name of the island came from the abundance of turtles found there although he only saw one. He wrote of the ancient legends of the god of the waters Mishabau being born at Mackinac and how the original peoples were vanquished by the Iroquois. Gabriel Macadepanese, known as Blackbird, was the son of a chief on Mackinac Island in the 1830s. He said the connection to the turtles was not true. He said the early Ottawa on the island were called the Mishinimackinac, and the island took its name after the Seneca killed all but two of the island people. The last survivors had 10 children who roamed the sacred island as spirits. 
Henry Schoolcraft, who lived on Mackinac Island in 1833, noted the island was known as Spirit or Fairy Island by its indigenous peoples. Mackinac became a destination for ships in 1679, a resupplying outpost at St. Ignace for the first sailing ship to enter Lake Huron. René Robert LaSalle was on a mission to relocate his men that had been sent ahead for furs, but instead escaped to the Sioux. He sent his henchman, Henry de Tante, to find the deserters. Tante must have been an intimidating bounty hunter, as he wore an iron replacement hand for the one he lost in a grenade explosion in Sicily. LaSalle's griffin was piloted by a Dane named Luke, who was upset with LaSalle after a near capsize in a storm on Saginaw Bay. With no other captain on the upper Great Lakes, LaSalle had no other choice than to let Luke sail back from Green Bay with five other crewmen, loaded with the furs he got from the Potawatomi. It was against his charter from King Louis XIV, but he was deep in debt to relatives and even the governor of New France, and the furs would pay down some of that debt. A storm two days later likely sank Le Griffin somewhere on northern Lake Michigan. The Mackinac Straits were the crossroads for the fur trade, a hub that required forts to protect vital trade routes. The war between the Huron and the Iroquois heated up when the Dutch started selling firearms directly to the Iroquois, and they used those weapons to chase the Hurons out of Michigan. Invasions into neutral territory prompted France to enter the conflict, and in 1666, they invaded the Iroquois homeland in New York. In 1688, a fort was reinforced at St. Ignace, named for Louis de Bois, Comte de Frontenac, the French governor for North America. In 1715, Misha Lomackinac was moved to the northern shore of Lower Michigan. The French and Indian War led to global conflict and the capture of Quebec by British forces in 1760. At Mackinac, Charles de Langelade surrendered the fort to the British, but maintained a residence within its borders. It was then that the Crown canceled annual gifts to the native population, which led to anger by the native peoples. Ottawan warrior Pontiac was frustrated with the change in leadership, and he soon garnered support by other nations to the notion that the British had to be overthrown. His plan was hardly a secret, as word of the insurrection made it to Fort Detroit by May the 6th. Major Henry Gladwin ordered his troops to arms as Pontiac called for a conference that next day, and 15 natives were observed casing the inside of the fort for its personnel and English storekeeps. Lieutenant James McDonald would later write that he believed the armed troops caused Pontiac to delay his attack, which grew to 300 in number by noon. Realizing his ruse was up, Pontiac murdered an Indian woman who he said was telling lies of the plan to attack Detroit. The natives began shooting at British ships in the river and began a siege on Fort Detroit that would last five months. In Mackinac, rumors of the insurrection prompted Charles Langlade to tell the fort commander to be cautious. Stories of an evil plan were echoed by at least two others who said that Captain George Etherington dismissed any notion his troops could be overthrown. Storekeeper Alexander Henry had been warned by his friend Chief Wawatam that perhaps he shouldn't spend the spring at Mackinac. High sales of his tomahawks and inquiries of silver jewelry without purchase led Henry to also tell Captain Etherington that something was amiss. Tribal leaders announced a big lacrosse game was planned for the fort to celebrate King George III's 25th birthday, and fort leadership were invited for a seat of honor. The Commandant only smiled at my suspicions, Alexander Henry would write in his autobiography. With limited connection to Detroit, 
They wouldn't know of the attacks that had already commenced, with forts at Miami and St. Joseph falling to native attack. Eight forts would fall under Pontiac's plan, but Detroit would hold fast, even with the capture of Gladwin's second-in-command, Captain Donald Campbell. A Jesuit priest arrived in Detroit with news of the attack on Misha Lamackinac, where the third-in-command, Lieutenant Jaminette, had been murdered and 21 other soldiers dying in the surprise attack. Ojibwe women had entered the fort concealing hatchets and spears that were handed to their warriors as they chased the lacrosse ball into the fort. Etherington and Lieutenant Leslie were easily captured and taken to Grand Traverse as hostages. Langlade was uninjured as his mother was Native American. Merchant Alexander Henry heard the war cry and managed to sneak into Langlade's attic where he watched the horror unfold. He was captured a day later and was about to be sent to Beaver Island when Wawatam interceded and talked his captors into allowing him to go to Mackinac Island. Henry would later write that Wawatam put him in a cave to hide him if his captors were to return, where Henry found some discomfort in sleep. He would later write, quote, I discovered with some feelings of horror that I was lying on nothing less than a heap of human bones and skulls which covered the floor, end quote. Etherington would write letters during his captivity that temporarily gave the fort to Langlade. The hostages were released in Montreal, and Henry also eventually escaped after a 200-mile journey that included several escapes from death. The remoteness of Mackinac led to another surprise attack on the island during the War of 1812. Upset over British imprisonment of American sailors, a declaration of war was signed by President James Madison June 18, 1812 but word of hostilities didn't reach Michigan's northern frontier until General Isaac Brock sailed the Caledonia with 70 war canoes and 10 large bateaux for Mackinac. A month after declaration of war, Brock fired a single shot from a five-pounder over the fort high atop Mackinac Island. They surrendered immediately. On September 10, 1813, Oliver Hazard Perry won control of Lake Erie and the victorious American fleet sailed into Canada to augment General Harrison's mounted troops to win the Battle of the Thames. Commodore Arthur Sinclair then took command, moving into Lake Huron, sailing into Georgian Bay to attack resupply ports en route to Mackinac. He then turned his attention to St. Joseph, where they burned the abandoned British fort. Scorpion was sent north to the Sioux to destroy the Northwest Company's storehouses and gristmill, and on July 26 arrived at Mackinac Island joining the 50-foot warship Tigris and Brig Caledonia. With news of that destruction providing early warning to the fort at Mackinac, McDowell knew the Americans were coming. 13 of 700 troops were killed trying to retake the island on August 14, 1814. Americans would have to wait until the signing of the Treaty of Ghent before they returned to Mackinac Island. They renamed Fort George in honor of Major Andrew Holmes, who had been killed in the 1814 attack. Canada got its revenge before the end of the war, with a small party capturing the Tigris and then sailing it under the American flag to ambush the Scorpion. It was renamed Surprise in honor of its capture. The next wounded man recorded at Mackinac Island may have been Alexis St. Martin. Duckshot opened a hole in his abdomen, taking part of his rib in his left lung. Most interestingly, it also opened his stomach which, even with the care of Fort Surgeon William Beaumont, didn't seem to heal correctly. 
After 10 months, it was discovered St. Martin was fit to return to work, but the stomach was still accessible through a pouch that Dr. Beaumont could access without causing any major discomfort. With the fur trader's permission, he conducted several years of experiments on how foods were digested, from eggs to meats and vegetables. It was the first experiment of its kind, and Beaumont's research was internationally famous. St. Martin followed the doctor to several other postings over 10 years with some 200 experiments. Today, that hospital still exists, abandoned by the government in 1875 and made into the nation's second national park. The state of Michigan took control of the facility and much of the island as their first state park in 1895. In 1887, the Michigan Central Railway, Detroit and Cleveland Steam Navigation Company, and the Grand Rapids and Indiana Railroad teamed up with hotel manager John Plank to build a hotel on Mackinac Island. The railroads had converged on Mackinac City, designed to haul logs and lumber, but now switching to passengers who were traveling to northern Michigan for its beauty and pollution-free air. Plank had made quite a name for himself, growing properties in Ohio and New York before teaming up with architect Charles Caskey to design Plank's Grand Hotel. It would be five stories tall on 500 acres of highland above the Mackinac Straits, 286 rooms, each with incandescent lighting and steam heat, and the entire project would be ready for occupancy in three months. Planks later announced they were dropping the manager's name and several area newspapers indicated he was working with other famous Michigan islands to recreate the magic at Mackinac. These included mentions of property on Grand Island near Munising. Isle Royal, and even property purchased on Lake Michigan's Fox Island. By 1894, Plank had hotels in St. Joseph, Northport, Detroit, Chicago, and was even courting Charleston, South Carolina, San Antonio, and Hot Springs, Arkansas. 1,500 feet of roadway was added to Mackinac Island in 1896, running to Mission Park and eventually to British Landing by 1905. A local attorney brought international attention to the island with an eight-mile bicycle tour that dodged cows along a packed cycling path free of the danger of automobiles. The route included attractions like Ferry Arch, Devil's Kitchen, and a new water feature near the Rock Arch. Funding support by Judge Edwin O. Wood of Flint created Dwightwood Spring, taking advantage of a 100% pure spring trickling out of the hillside. His plaque in Stone Basin honored his 14-year-old son lost to a tragic fire truck accident in 1905. The annual boat regatta is a traditional attraction at Mackinac Island. In 1940, James Fitzpatrick's travelogue included Mackinac Island in theaters around the world. A popular vacation resort which has distinguished itself as the last stand of the horse by excluding all forms of motorized vehicles. It was no surprise that Hollywood came calling soon after. Where do they live? Mackinac Island. You know, we could make it in a few days. All seasons on Mackinac were featured in This Time for Keeps, featuring Esther Williams and Jimmy Durante. The world was treated to summer lake vistas, lilacs in spring, and a winter ferry crossing. But for swimming scenes featuring Miss Williams, they had to contractually heat Grand Hotel's pool to a balmy 82 degrees. That required an $85,000 heater. In 1997, Christopher Reeves, Christopher Plummer, and Jane Seymour made the most memorable movie on the island. Somewhere in Time was a time-traveling love story 
that was panned in the U.S. but broke records in Hong Kong. The Grand Hotel wasn't named, but it was featured prominently, as did a renovated Round Island lighthouse, which was in danger of collapsing into the channel just a few years before filming. Three years later, nearby Mackinac City got a nod on the radio thanks to Bob Seger. His 12th studio album, The Distance, featured his motorcycle adventure, Roll Me Away. One hundred years ago, it was just $12 to take a palatial steamer from Detroit to Mackinac. And today, cruise ships like La Belote have returned to share the magic of Mackinac with millions of new visitors each year. Five tons of fudge are made daily for the fudgies, the visitors who buy the fudge by the millions of tons annually, making it the number one tourist destination in Michigan. Recently, TripAdvisor listed Mackinac as the number one vacation spot in the nation, even above Martha's Vineyard and Yellowstone National Park. Thank you for joining me for a historical look at the maritime marvel of Mackinac. For ShipwreckPodcast.com, I'm Rick Mixter.